Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. We are coming to a conclusion for our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We have Matthew chapters 27 and 28. And in these two final chapters, we are going to focus in on the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. The chief things that he was sent into the world to do, to give his life as a redemption for you and me. And we see that God the Father, in order to convey that he received the perfect work of the cross, that Messiah perfectly carried out his Father's will, this is seen in the fact that God raised his Son from the dead. These events, the death, burial, and resurrection, these events are the foundation of our faith. So we want to study them very carefully so that we can understand the biblical truth, God's revelation to us, so that we can respond faithfully in a God-pleasing manner. So with that said, take out your Bible and let's begin chapter 27. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27, and in a moment we'll begin with verse 1. Now, we get a lot of correspondence through letters and emails from Muslims. And most of what we receive from those who have identified themselves as Muslims is very negative. And one of the common things that we hear is because, me being Jewish, that it was the Jews that killed Christ, that we are Christ killers. But let's be biblical about something. What did Messiah say? He says that he laid down his life. No one took it from him. No one killed him, but rather he offered himself up. And why did he do that? Because of sin. Your sin, my sin. Because of the sins of the world. Because Jewish people sin and because Gentiles also sin. It was because of humanity's need for forgiveness because we all are sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Therefore, he was not murdered, he was not killed, but he went willfully to the cross because of our sin debt because we are guilty before God. And that is a very important fact. We see likewise a transition in this chapter because there was that trial before the Sanhedrin. But now the Sanhedrin, and we'll see this right away in this 27th chapter, the, the Jewish leadership is going to pass him over to 
Pontius Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire. And we could see that there is a Jewish aspect, the Sanhedrin, and there's a Gentile aspect, the Roman Empire. And once again, that is to show that we are all guilty. Every human being because of our sin. We are sinful and therefore it was us individually we need to think. We need to understand that that caused Messiah to go to that cross. So let's begin Matthew chapter 27 and we're going to begin in verse 1 where it says here, but, and this means in contrast, we saw that for the most part before the Sanhedrin, it was in the middle of the night. But now, in contrast to that, it has come about morning time. And when we look at this word, we find it very early in the morning. So it came about in the early morning that all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they took counsel. They wanted to put into action their decision. We already saw in chapter 26 that there was an agreement that he should be put to death, that he was guilty. And therefore, they wanted to know now, speaking to one another, what to do, how to bring this about. So we read here that all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they took counsel, and here's the key, against Yeshua so that they would kill him. They wanted him to die in order to, what it literally says, in order to put him to death, to have him killed. But here's the key. All of this did not take God by surprise. None of this was a surprise to Yeshua himself. We need to remember that he said in this Gospel of Matthew, several times. Passover is at hand. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and they will condemn me to death. That's what we've seen. And then ultimately, he says, I will be crucified. But on the third day, he says, I will rise. And that resurrection, as we'll see, is so significant. What a powerful message of victory, of defeating sin and death, and allowing one who receives this work of Messiah by faith to become a new creation, to find life. But here, we find that the leadership, they are not focusing in on life. They do not understand the prophetic significance of what's happening. Why Messiah is before them. What are they doing? Taking counsel so that he would be put to death. Verse 2. And after binding him, and we know something. In a moment in this verse, we're going to see that Yeshua is going to be sent to Pontius Pilate. And it's very significant that now, at this time, not previously, but now he's going to be bound. Why is that? Well, in order to send a message to the Romans, 
He's, he's dangerous. He's got to be bound up because he's such a threat. But until this time, they never bound him. They knew that he was not a physical threat, that he did not come to, to attack, to do anything like that. But in order to create a scenario where he looks guilty, it says here, and after binding him, they sent him away or led him away and gave him, delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. What governor? Of the Roman Empire. Now, even though that there was influence from the Jewish leadership, not the people in general, but a few leaders, because of their influence, we see something. We see that there was still a component of the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, in putting pressure on Pontius Pilate, but he ultimately, and we're going to see this very clearly, he ultimately made that decision because of his own selfish desires, because of his own desire to not have political problems. So having bound him, they led him away and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, verse 3, then. Now, we're going to focus in for a few minutes on one known as Judas Iscariot. Now, his name in Hebrew is Yehuda, which means to praise, but he's living anything than a praiseworthy life. He is living a life of rebellion, a life that is manipulated by the enemy because of Judas's love for money. And when we love the things of the world rather than the things of God, when we are led by, by the things of this world, we will be easily tempted. We will be easily manipulated by the enemy. Now, none of that, and hear that carefully, none of that removes guiltiness from us. No, it leads us into behaving in a way that our guiltiness that's within, that sinful nature, that desires that are not pleasing to God, that they lead us into behavior that brings about the judgment of God. Now, Judas, what does it say here in verse 3? Then Judas, the one having betrayed him, seeing that he had been condemned, now it says he had regret. He regretted this. Why? Now, here was his mindset. He had seen many times previously that there was a, a plot, there was some conspiracy, some attempt to, to shame him, to capture him, to, to do something negative towards Yeshua. And every time previously, what would happen? He would speak in a way, something would happen, sometimes supernatural. Look at the end of John chapter 8, for example. We see that they were not successful. And this, I believe, was Judas' mindset, that he could conspire against his, his master, his rabbi, the one that he was supposed to be loyal to, that he could conspire against him, profit from this, but no harm would come from it. 
that this would just be another time when Messiah, he was wiser and he was able to, to not succumb to their, their desires to entrap him, to shame him, to capture him, to do what they wanted to do. But this time was different. So when Judas saw this, that he had been condemned, he re remorsed, he regretted this, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the high priest and to the elders. He had remorse, regret. Now, the question is, was it repentance? And it was not. Why not? Well, having remorse and regret is a good thing. When we do something wrong, it's proper for us to have regret over this, remorse over this. But true repentance leads to two things. True repentance, like John the Baptist taught, is going to bear forth fruit worthy of repentance, meaning that shows, that manifests the sincerity. It's going to cause a proper action, a change. You may say, well, he returned the money. But there is something else that's important. Repentance is a desire to be reconciled with God. Judas, no indication whatsoever. He simply had grief and regret that he was, was doing these things, but it did not produce a, a repentant fruit, a reconciliation, a desire to, and did he go to Messiah and confess that sin? No. All he wanted to do was, was escape the situation. And running away, fleeing from the problem, is never true repentance. So we see here that he went back to the elders and to the chief priests, and he returned the money. And he said, look now to verse 4, he was saying, I have sinned, I betrayed innocent blood. Yes, he recognized that what he did was sinful, that he had betrayed one who was innocent, and that fact is so important to remember, that he was innocent of any sin all of his life, never falling short of the glory of God. He, and he alone, is the righteous one. So he says, I have sinned. I have betrayed, delivered over innocent blood. But, and this says a lot about the leadership at this time, they responded, they were saying, what is this to us? Meaning simply, they didn't care. This was not of any significance to them. Why? Because they were committed to their sinful desires, bringing about the outcome that they wanted. They were not concerned with justice. They were not concerned with righteousness. They were not concerned with anything other than what they thought was best for them in order to keep their leadership position and all the benefits that went with that, they were not concerned with what was important to God. So they said, what is it to us? And then they say, you see. Now, literally, it's in the future. But this shows that perhaps the language here that they were speaking, not the language 
that, that these words were written down in, that was Greek. But, but they could have been speaking Hebrew. Why? Well, many of the English translations say and translate this phrase, not in the future, but simply you see to it as a form of command. And by the way, frequently in Hebrew, the future is used in a, an imperative manner, meaning the language of a command. So I think it's right for them to translate it in that way. You see to it. It is a command. This is not of our concern. You deal with it yourself. And what did he do? Look now to verse 5. And he, and the word here means to make to fall. We would understand it as to cast down. We read here that he cast down the silver. And notice something. If your Bible simply says into the temple, it's not the normal Greek word for temple, heron. It is the word neos, and this is the sanctuary. Now, the reason why it's said in this manner is to first and foremost convey to the reader that this was an offense, a sin against God himself. There is a special relationship because the temple, this Greek word heron, means the whole temple area, all the structures in a very general sense. But the word that appears here, neos, in its normal, in its primary, primary uh, state, it refers to the sanctuary, that which is the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And the message here, and the word of God is written for the purpose of revelation to teach us. And it underscores that first and foremost, all sin is a sin against God. It is an affront against him. And therefore, we see that he, he casted the silver into the sanctuary. He withdrew himself. Very, very significant word. He, he didn't go to Yeshua. He didn't confess his sin before him. He didn't seek forgiveness. He simply withdrew and he went away. And then notice the end of verse 5. He hung himself. Now, this is in the, the middle voice. And that's why himself, even though that, that phrase is not there, it's understood because of the construction of the verb being in the middle. So he went out and hung himself. Now, other Gospels refer to his death in a different way. There's no conflict. There's no problem. Because oftentimes when someone hangs themselves, when they are cut down, or when, when the pressure of that happens to them, it will cause their, their intestines to rupture and sometimes spill out. And therefore, there is no contradiction between the two different accounts of, of Judas's death. One emphasizes the primary means he hung himself. Another is to show shame that in the end, his, his bowels were open up. And this all shows it's an idiom for shamefulness. Did it literally happen? I believe it did. I believe the things of the scripture, in the way that they refer, they are referred to us. But realize, they can also have 
a significant message to the reader. That, that Judas, he died, he hung himself, but there was a shameful aspect of this. And when we die in rebelliousness, when we die in truly unrepentant sin, the outcome, and this is the message, is going to be shameful. It is going to be a very sad state. Let's move on to verse 6. But the high priests, having taken the silver, they said, it is not lawful to place it into the treasury, meaning the temple treasury. Why? Since it is the price of blood. Now, what is this? Blood money. It is money that was used in an unrighteous means. And they said, we can't have such money that comes from a criminal endeavor, a sinful endeavor being contributed into the treasury. That's true. But it was them who gave this money. And it's showing a disconnect, being able to live so-called piously, religiously, but missing the point of what? True faith, what religion is truly about. So they said it's the price of blood. Verse 7. Therefore, we read, taking counsel, they bought from it, bought from these 30 pieces of silver, they bought the potter's field for the burial of strangers. Now, what they did instead of utilizing a, a sacrificial way, meaning instead of reaching into their own pockets or the treasury in order to, to do what's necessary when someone who's a stranger, probably a non-Jew, dies, or someone who has no family, then the temple leadership would take it upon themselves to give them a proper burial. That would cost money. So now they're using that money to purchase land in order to save them the expense of, of having to pay for the burial of, of strangers. And what does the scripture say? We should always be thoughtful, kind, reaching out to strangers. They weren't doing that. Verse, verse 8, Therefore, that field is called the blood field even to this day. Verse 9, now, in verse 9, we get into what many people see as a problem because it's going to be speaking about a prophecy having to do with these 30 pieces of silver. Here's the mistake that many people make. The purpose is not to quote a citation. First of all, when we look at what's written here, it does not match what is written in Zechariah, and it's certainly not found this this idea of of the 30 pieces of silver is not found at all in the book of jeremiah some people want to say here's an heir in the new testament it is not we need to understand what the writer of this gospel matthew's gospel is conveying there's a very important message what it's saying here and let's just look at it look at verse 9 then was fulfilled the word through Jeremiah the prophet saying. Now, he's not saying that these 30 pieces of silver 
were, were, were mentioned in Jeremiah, and he's quoting Jeremiah. He's not, nor is he quoting, as some Christian scholars say, the book of Zechariah. The language is not identical. It doesn't appear here in, in Zechariah, this phrase in this way. There's an allusion to, there's a reference to the 30 pieces of silver, but not in this language. So what is Matthew doing? He's teaching us something. In the same way that the leadership in the days of Jeremiah, in light of Jeremiah's prophecy, what happened? They rejected prophetic truth. They rejected Jeremiah, the one that was sent to them. In order to bring about true repentance, submissiveness, they rejected, and then what do we know? They reached the point that God says to Jeremiah, do not pray any longer for these people. Do not intercede. Why? A disaster is coming. They have made a disastrous mistake, and that is that they have rejected the prophet Jeremiah. And that brought about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And in a similar way, what he's saying is this. In a similar way, this decision that they made in regard to Yeshua. Even though God used that, God used the Babylonian captivity. He taught the people something. There was an outcome. God used it eventually for good. Read the prophet Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9, that powerful prayer. Daniel refers to this. But the message is this. In the same way that that horrible decision of rejecting Jeremiah's prophecy brought about pain, suffering, and such, so too is the rejection of Messiah. That they did not recognize him for what the prophet said and what's going to happen, well, we know. And 40 years later, the same thing that Jeremiah prophesied that took place is going to happen again with the destruction of the second temple and once more the people going into exile. That's the point. So he says, then was fulfilled the word through Jeremiah the prophet saying, and now how it's being carried out, he took the 30 pieces of silver, the price which was priced by the children of Israel that they priced out, meaning this, they thought it was right to use these 30 pieces of silver for a solution to their problem. It did not work. It didn't work what they decided in the days of Jeremiah, and it didn't work now. They made the same wrong decision, rejecting prophetic truth. Now we're ready for the last verse, verse 10. And they gave it in order to buy this field, the field of the, the potter. And then notice how the text ends. It says, they gave it for the potter's field, just as the Lord directed me. Now, who's the me here? Most scholars agree. It's the prophet, excuse me, it's Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel. He's saying that all of this, how I constructed it, wrote it down, what I'm sharing, it all was, was instructed to me to write it down in this way. The author of Matthew's gospel is telling us this revelation was directed. What he's sharing, it was directed to him by God himself. A very important biblical truth for understanding 
God's revelation. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Shalom from Israel.